This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Davidson. He is a pioneer in studying the effects of mindfulness meditation on the human brain. He is a research professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where he is also the founder and director of the Center for Healthy Minds. He is the co-author of The Emotional Life of Your Brain and Altered Traits. Science reveals how meditation changes your mind, brain, and body. He was inducted into the National Academy of Medicine in 2017. We feel so fortunate to know today's guest, Dr. Richard Davidson. We're big admirers of his work. Trisha and I actually met him through mutual friends, and we were lucky enough to attend the World We Make conference at the University of Wisconsin, where, thanks to Richie, we spent time with his friend and mentor, the Dalai Lama. So, Richie, welcome to Health Gig. Yes, Richie, welcome. Thank you so much, and thank you both for all you're doing to promote well-being in this world. We love it, and we're so happy that we have people like you to talk to. Before we get into the science of mindfulness, we thought you could first tell people how you came to study healthy minds. I'm a neuroscientist and a psychologist by training, and in the early part of my career, I was interested in one fundamental question, which still very much motivates much of our work today, And the question is simply, why is it that some people are more vulnerable to life's slings and arrows and others more resilient? And how can we nudge people along this continuum to promote increased flourishing and increased resilience? That's really the question I began with. And in the early part of my career, I focused mostly on the adversity side of that continuum. Uh, I studied the brain circuits that are important for conferring vulnerability to depression and to anxiety. I also studied how stress impacts and impairs the brain and the body. I first met the Dalai Lama in 1992. He challenged me and he said, you've been using tools of modern neuroscience to study negative qualities of life, stress, adversity, anxiety. Why can't you use those same tools to study positive qualities like kindness and compassion and flourishing. And that was the beginning of an important pivot. And we began to orient our work more toward this positive side. And it's really very much become our central focus now. And didn't you fly some Buddhist monks from Tibet and Nepal to your lab? We did. The Dalai Lama encouraged me to begin serious neuroscientific research on 
the minds and brains of these individuals who spent years training their mind. And so we began a very unusual study, and the Dalai Lama was our chief recruiter uh, who <laughs> helped us find these people. And we flew them to Madison. They spent several days in residence here. And we probed and prodded and measured their brain and their body. And there were many publications that came from that, including some very high-profile publications in some of the very best scientific journals in the world. And we decided we would begin with this group because if we didn't see differences in them right. compared to others, then we would be very unlikely to see differences with more beginning practitioners. And so this really was done to help us establish whether there was really a there there. And the findings clearly indicated that their brains and bodies were indeed different. And there are some remarkable early findings with these practitioners. And that's one of the most important things that encouraged us to continue along this path. And how were they received by the scientific community? Well, you know, it's interesting. If you look at a graph that displays the publications on mindfulness and meditation in the serious scientific literature, there's an inflection point right around 2004, 2005. And it was in 2003 when we published our first randomized controlled trial of mindfulness-based stress reduction, a commonly taught form of mindfulness meditation here in the U.S. and many other Western countries. And in 2004, we published our first paper with the very long-term meditation practitioners. And that publication was published in an extremely high-profile scientific journal. These two papers, I think, played a very important role in helping to establish for the scientific community that there really was something worthy of investigating. And I would say it took some time before the mainstream scientific community really got on board. But at this point in time, I think that everyone recognizes that there really mm -hmm. is a serious scientific literature while there's still many things that have yet to be resolved and many unanswered questions, the fact that meditation can be helpful for the brain and the body, I think, is really well established. And just this past year, I was part of a group that published a paper in the Journal of the American Heart Association and was a consensus committee that the American Heart Association established to evaluate the efficacy of meditation as an adjunct treatment for people that have various forms of cardiovascular illness. And this was actually the first time that a major medical professional society in the U.S. came out in endorsing the utility of meditation for a number of medical conditions. And so that's a marker of real change that is occurring. That's incredible. And when we were looking at your latest studies, that was one question that we did have for you. And the idea that the brain is connected to the body, right? Like, so it's not separate. And that's something that you brought to the forefront, the idea that your body's all one, right? Yeah. And that's such an important issue. For a long time, I think people thought, well, if meditation might be helpful, it may help in promoting psychological well-being, but nothing more. 
And what we're learning now is that the brain is intimately connected with bidirectional pathways to the body. And we also know from epidemiological research that people who report higher levels of well-being are indeed physically healthier. It doesn't happen with everyone. There are certainly exceptions. But if you look at large populations, tens of thousands of people, you see these general trends. And so that leads to the invitation that if we cultivate well-being, we may actually change our peripheral biology, that is biology below the neck, in ways that may promote increased physical health. And there's beginning to be a considerable corpus of evidence suggesting a number of health-related benefits on hard-nosed biological measures that occur as a consequence of certain forms of meditation. Can you talk about the brain's plasticity, you know, what that means and how our brains respond to stress and other experiences we might have? You know, this is really related to the general issue of neuroplasticity and the idea that the brain is constantly being changed, being shaped. In most cases, our brains are being shaped by forces around us about which we may only be dimly aware and we often have little control. So the invitation in all of this work is that we can actually take more responsibility for our own brains by cultivating healthy habits of mind. On the adversity side, there is a serious scientific literature that shows that adversity gets under the skin and affects the brain in deleterious ways. We know, for example, that child maltreatment, not just physical maltreatment, but emotional maltreatment can impair the brain. We also know that poverty has serious brain consequences. These findings clearly suggest that these adverse social conditions can get under the skin and actually create in brain function and structure. And so in an important way, the very mechanisms in the brain that can lead to negative consequences and to suffering can be harnessed for the good by cultivating healthy habits of mind. So we take advantage of the same principles of neuroplasticity. By doing these exercises, we can shape the brain in ways that we think could be helpful. So the forces, I mean, neuroplasticity is neutral with respect to being positive or negative, and it really depends upon what the context, what the circumstances are, what kind of influences a person is receiving. And our aspiration is that particularly by introducing these practices early on in a child's life, we can actually help to establish healthy habits of mind that will have multiplicative effects as children develop. Before we get too far away from it, we mentioned the Dalai Lama, <laughs> and I know that you all are really good friends. And we, we saw that. We saw the way that you two interconnect, the way you, your body language together. I mean, it's a true, true friendship. So I think people will want yeah. to know about the Dalai mm-hmm. Lama. He like hit the pause button on our questions. We want to know about the Dalai Lama. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to share. I typically see him three or four times a year these days. And I consider myself a lifelong student of emotion. And so it's been a real privilege for me to observe the Dalai Lama's emotional disposition 
And there are several things to say about it. One is, I think, in the popular media, there's sometimes a stereotype of meditation making people emotional zombies and sort of decreasing their emotional reactivity. And you don't need to spend a long time with the Dalai Lama to realize that that is a complete misconception. The Dalai Lama is emotionally very lively. He relishes the moment. And what you see in the Dalai Lama is a really extraordinarily large dynamic range of emotions. So I've seen him in situations where someone might describe a tragic situation to him, Tibetans being tortured in China, and he would actually cry, visibly cry. And then in the next moment, he might notice something funny and he would burst out laughing. And it's not inappropriate. He's simply responding to what is present in the moment. You know, most of us as adults have really lost this capacity to shift rapidly from one emotion to another. You see this in babies who can go from laughing to crying or crying to laughing at the snap of a finger, but that's typically not true of adults. Yet it is something we see in the Dalai Lama, and so he has these emotions, but they're not sticky. They don't perseverate. He can express an emotion and then come right back down to baseline. And that is something we consider to be a hallmark of resilience and well-being. And something that we've observed in other meditators, not to the same extent, but to some extent, and we can measure this very precisely in a laboratory, the rapidity with which you recover from adversity particularly is really an important characteristic. The Dalai Lama has that ability in an extraordinary way. And I'll say one more thing, and that is that he treats everyone with kindness and respect, acknowledging kind of the innate basic goodness of every human being. He's really touched by that, and I think people feel touched by him in that way. He can find the basic humanity in every human being. And I've seen him in situations where I went to an 80th birthday party of his, for example, that was held in a fancy hotel in New York City. And there are many very famous people at this birthday party. And then he went out after the party, and I was with him as he walked through the kitchen area of the hotel, and he stopped to greet all the servers and the security people were there. And he treated them the same way he treated other people who are very, very famous. It didn't matter. He treated everyone in the same way. That's so beautiful. He's just so filled with joy. I mean, you can see it. And when you talk about the innate goodness, we've heard you talk about that, too, in your lectures. Can you expand on that? Because you say everybody is born good, right? Yeah, well, there's actually a growing body of scientific evidence that is focused mostly on young children, particularly infants. And if you arrange a little puppet scenario with six-month-old babies where two puppets are cooperating and helping each other versus another scenario where puppets are actually selfish and aggressive. You offer these puppets to these babies and look to see which puppet it reaches for. It will reach for the puppet that was warm-hearted and cooperative, not the puppet that was selfish. 
And this is the kind of evidence, and I should say these studies have been published in very prestigious scientific journals. This is not fringe science. It's really hard-nosed mainstream developmental psychology. And so these are the kind of data that we've used to support the argument that early on, if you're given a choice, you're much more likely to choose the pro-social alternative. Sadly, as kids develop, they typically become more selfish. But the way we think about generosity and kindness is that particularly kindness and compassion, those qualities are there in a rudimentary form at birth, but they require nurturing. They require cultivation. And it's very similar to the way scientists think about language. We all come into the world with a capacity for language, but in order for that capacity to be expressed, it needs to be nurtured. And there are actually some case studies of feral children who are raised in the wild, and they don't develop normal language if they're not exposed to a normal linguistic community. And so we think the same is true of kindness and compassion. It's one of the reasons why early influences we think may be so important. Can you kind of elaborate kindness and compassion? What is kindness and what is compassion when you talk about that? Well, compassion is the disposition to relieve another's suffering, and kindness is the disposition to promote the well-being of another or to be kind, to cultivate the positive emotions of another. Those are often difficult to separate. They typically co-occur. We often train them together. Another way to think about it is that with meditation practices that are designed to cultivate loving kindness, what we often say is that they have as their focus the aspiration for others to be happy. And with compassion, there's the aspiration that others be free of suffering. So they go hand in hand. We read that you've described kindness and love as the next frontier. What do you mean by that? The word love, it's a word that scientists typically are afraid to use. (laughs) (laughs) For me, the most important thing is this. When we think about the people we love, we often think about our family members, our close friends. And when we do that, we're sort of defining an in-group. And one of the aspirations in this kind of practices that we're talking about to cultivate compassion is to expand the in-group. And we were talking about the Dalai Lama before, and I would say for the Dalai Lama, everybody is part of the Dalai Lama's in-group. He does not have an out-group, particularly in our culture today where there's an increase in divisiveness and a decrease in civility. I think that this is so important to be able to recognize everyone's basic humanity and to do what we can to expand the in-group. I have the conviction that if people did this for even a short amount of time each day, the world would really look a little different than it does now. When we talk about thoughts and feelings, they aren't separate. They're actually intermingled in the brain. Is there a limit on how much our brains can change? Yeah, that's a really important point, and thank you for asking about that. The way the brain is organized, as we now understand it, there really is no territory that's exclusively 
for thought and one exclusively for emotion. They're very much intermingled and they often go together. So when we engage in decision-making, which we often think of as, quote, rational, we clearly are using our emotions as part of that decision-making. So, for example, very common decisions that people make, although certainly complicated ones, are decisions, for example, should I marry this particular spouse or should I buy this car? Complicated decisions of that sort are not made exclusively on the basis of a cold cognitive calculus, but rather we consult our emotions. We sort of try on different decisions and we introspect about how we feel about choice A versus choice B. And this actually goes on all the time. We so take it for granted, I think, that we don't really appreciate how important our emotions are in many everyday decisions that we make. In these kinds of cases, what you see is there are parts of the brain that we know are involved in this kind of decision-making, which are not purely cognitive and not purely emotional. They really are both. How did scientists understand that our thoughts and feelings are essentially one and the same? How did they figure that out? There's lots of different strands that have contributed to that. One person who really deserves a huge amount of credit for helping us appreciate this actually is someone who won the Nobel Prize in economics, Daniel Kahneman. He's a psychologist by training. He is at Princeton University, but his research has been focused on decision-making. And one of the key insights of Kahneman is that the classic view of economists that we make economic decisions strictly rationally, Kahneman showed that that was just not true. There are emotional factors which enter into decision-making all the time, and that you cannot explain decision-making purely on the basis of rational considerations because people behave irrationally. That is, they make all kinds of decisions that are not necessarily best predicted by a strict rational analysis, but can be better understood once we take into account their emotional tendencies. We know a lot about this from that kind of work. And then also there's the neuroscientific research has been so important in helping us appreciate the idea that emotions and cognition or thinking are separate in the brain. The brain does not respect that division. Richie, the two critical parts of the human brain that are involved in our happiness and sense of well-being are the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Can you describe what each of these areas of the brain does? I certainly can, and I would expand that a little bit. The prefrontal cortex is an area that sits in the front of our brain, and if you compare humans to other non-human primates. This area of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, has expanded in volume the greatest compared to other brain regions in looking across evolution. There's a lot of reason to believe that many of the qualities we view as distinctively human are importantly influenced by the prefrontal cortex. One of those is our capacity to regulate emotion. Human beings have a greater capacity to regulate their emotions than any other species. We can use 
our thoughts, we can interpret situations in particular ways which influence how we respond emotionally to those situations. And the prefrontal cortex is one of those areas in the brain where thoughts and feelings come together in a very important way. I should also hasten to add that the prefrontal cortex clearly has all these amazing adaptive functions which contribute to happiness and well-being, but it also is the area of the brain that can get us into trouble and can produce a lot of dysregulation. And it really goes back to this idea that of neuroplasticity that's neutral. It's not necessarily positive or negative. And the same is true of the prefrontal cortex. You know, it depends on how it's being used. There's a very famous neuroscientist at Stanford who wrote a book a number of years ago called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, written by Robert Sapolsky. The short reason why zebras don't get ulcers is because they have a really small prefrontal cortex. One of the things that the prefrontal cortex can do is to allow us to anticipate the future and reflect on the past. If we worry about the future and ruminate about the past, those are the kinds of things that can ensnare us and cause ulcers. But we can also harness this potential to direct our minds on positive qualities and nurture human flourishing. And so it goes both ways. Now, you also brought up the amygdala. The amygdala is an area of the brain that is a really important area for labeling things that are important. We think of it as a salience detector. When important things happen in the world, our amygdalas get activated. And of course, the things that are important to us are the emotional things. The amygdala has been especially implicated in various kinds of negative emotions and particularly threat. When you know, listeners imagine being subjected to all the media that we have in this country and a lot of negative messages that we get in the media, that's all triggering our amygdala and activating fear. And the prefrontal cortex helps to regulate that. It helps to modulate the activity in the amygdala in ways that make it more manageable. Mm -hmm. And this is something that importantly contributes to well-being. But the prefrontal cortex also has connections to other areas of the brain that are more directly implicated in positive emotion, and it can help us sustain positive emotion and maintain a positive outlook. When we reflect on people we know, we all know people who just have an optimistic attitude toward life and others who don't. This is actually something that can be nurtured and learned. And we think having a positive outlook is really so important because in part, a positive outlook is one that believes that change is possible. And the belief that change is possible is a very important step in actually producing positive change. If you don't believe that change is possible, it's very difficult to actually change. And it's a practice to push yourself over to the sunny side of the street, <laughs> you know, because it seems easy or comforting or something to lean in toward the negative. And sometimes it's a challenge, but you just have to move yourself over there. I certainly agree. It is really a challenge. And I think it's so important in today's world. And one of the analogies that I sometimes use is brushing your teeth. When, when humans evolved on this planet, we didn't all start brushing our teeth right away. 
Yet, I think it's fair to say that virtually every human being on this planet probably brushes their teeth at least a couple of times a day. It's something that we've learned is important for our personal physical hygiene. And what we're talking about here is a kind of personal mental hygiene. And I think that, pardon any dentists that may be listeners, but I think most people would agree that our minds are even more important than our teeth, or at least as important. And so if we can nurture our minds, even for a few minutes a day, I think it would really make a difference. You have to keep on thinking positive and you have to keep on meditating to sustain these changes. And how much do I have to do it? You do have to keep doing it from all the evidence that we have. And it's kind of like we sort of all know this intuitively because we know that if you do physical exercise, if you had a trainer that you work with or went to the gym five days a week for a few weeks, we all know that we would benefit from that. But if we stopped exercising at that point, the benefits would eventually wear off. Mm -hmm. uh, and we all intuitively understand that. And the same is true of this kind of mental practice. We need to keep doing it as a lifelong skill. And it's just like brushing our teeth. We don't stop brushing our teeth when we reach a certain age. We keep doing it. This is really a key issue in its building a kind of lifelong habit. And in terms of how long, scientific evidence shows that even short amounts of practice can make a difference. But it also shows that the more we practice, typically, for most outcomes that have been studied, the more profound the effects will be. But I always recommend to people that they begin very modestly and try to set this up for themselves to be successful. What I often say to people is, please choose an amount of time that you think you can do these practices every day for 30 days, even if it's as short as one or two minutes a day. Just start there and then see how it goes. And if it's producing some benefit, then you can extend it. But I think it's really important to start very, very modestly. Is there a limit on how much our brains can change? It's a great question. I don't think we know the answer to that, to be honest. I would be very skeptical of someone who said that we know the answer. And that's because we really haven't tested very intensive and long-term kinds of interventions. You know, you've described the state of our minds as an urgent public health crisis. Why do you think we've overlooked the mind so much compared to the attention we've given to our bodies? Well, it's a great question. I think it's a little bit more elusive. It's not as readily measured as taking your blood pressure. We all understand blood pressure, but getting a measure of your well-being is more challenging. And so I think that's part of it. But I do think that there is increased serious attention being paid to this, largely because of the the kind of frightening statistics that we now have. I mean, if we look at the evidence from the Center for Disease Control, for example, looking at anxiety and depression in our adolescence in the U.S. today, those rates are skyrocketing. We know today that there is more than one suicide every day in the United States by a teenager. You know, these are very disturbing trends, and I believe that we can make a difference. And I also believe that it's actually cost-effective, that if we invest in early interventions to 
prevent these problems from occurring later on. It will actually save money with all of the resources that are necessary for dealing with the devastating consequences of not intervening. Another economist who won the Nobel Prize by the name of James Heckman, who's at the University of Chicago, and he studied the effects of early interventions and the economic benefits of them. And he found that for every dollar invested in high-quality preschool programs to promote social and emotional learning, there's a 13% return on that investment by the time the individual is 20 years old. So that's pretty good. You know, I think that we need to marshal these kinds of arguments to make the case for why it's so important for all kinds of reasons to do this. Um, Richie, you touched on resilience and You've said it's one of the most powerful predictors of mortality. How would you define resilience? Can we just talk about that for a minute? The way we define resilience is quite specific. We define it as the rapidity with which you recover from adversity. And we can actually measure that. We can measure that in different physiological systems. We can also measure it directly in the brain. And it turns out that there is evidence. We actually have new evidence ourselves in a longitudinal cohort that we've been following in research that's funded by the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S. that shows that among people who are in their latter decades of life, in their 70s and 80s, um, those people who fail to recover quickly from adversity actually die sooner. Richie, as Dora and I were researching for the podcast today, we were fascinated by the recent study that you're doing in India on the dying and even beyond death. This is probably a topic for another podcast, but we wanted to bring it up and get your thoughts on this and just sort of an overview of what's going on. I'm certainly happy to talk about it. I can give you an answer briefly, and certainly if you wanted to expand on it, we can do a whole podcast on it. In the Tibetan tradition that the Dalai Lama comes from, uh, there is this phenomenon that has been observed very repeatedly, and that is that when people die who have been practitioners of meditation, who've trained their mind in the kind of ways we're talking about, particularly if they've trained a lot, when they die, their bodies don't immediately decompose. And this is said in this Buddhist tradition to be a time of transition. And even though the heart has stopped beating, and even though we would in the West, using the conventional Western medical criteria, we would say that they're dead because they have no heartbeat, their breathing has stopped. In the Tibetan tradition, they would say that there's still some residual awareness, which is still preserved in some way. And one of the physical signs of this is that the body does not decompose until this period has ended. And this period can last anywhere from a few hours up to a few weeks. And so at one point when I was with the Dalai Lama, he said in his sort of characteristic way, I would like you to study this. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> you know, he said publicly that if there's anything in Buddhism that's directly contradicted by scientific fact, he is prepared to give it up. So he wanted to see serious scientific investigation of this. We began a research project where we are 
trying to evaluate this in the best way we can using known measures. And we've been at this now for several years. We've tested about 12 practitioners. And really the only thing I could say at this point, and it's not because I'm being coy, it's simply that we just don't know. The only observation that's been consistent is the bodies indeed do not decompose for some period of time. And that time is variable. When the body begins to decompose, in their tradition, they say that this period has ended. And they have a specific name for this period. And the translation is the clear light stage. And there's a specific Tibetan word for that. We're continuing to study this. We're taking a bunch of additional measures. One of the measures we're taking is a body temperature because there's some claim in the, in the Tibetan texts that the area around the heart continues to stay warm, even though by Western criteria, it should become cooler because the heart has stopped beating. We're starting to measure all these things and we'll see. You know, it's a wild kind of study, not the kind of study I would do at the beginning of my career, (laughs) (laughs) but we'll see. And I think at the very least, it will sensitize people to the complexity of dying. You know, sometimes we think of dying as flipping a switch, where one moment we're alive and the next moment we're dead. The fact is that biological systems don't work like this, typically. There's not like an on-off switch like that. It's got to be a more gradual process Mm -hmm. at the very least. That, I think, alone will be very helpful. One of the possibilities, for example, is that different parts of the brain may die at different rates. And that's just something we don't know. It's never been studied. Because in science, there's always this tendency to think of the body, mind, and spirit as separate. And one of the questions we wanted to ask you is, you know, what's your research over the years revealed about the relationship of the three? But it seems that this study in itself, it kind of culminates a lot of that, right? Yes, there's certainly a lot embedded in this. And there are a lot of implications for understanding those interconnections between the body, the brain, the mind, and what we might call the spirit. And so it's very complicated. And one of our aspirations is that at the very least, this should help to promote a kind of intellectual humility. You know, sometimes scientists have a tendency to basically think that they know how everything works. And it's a kind of intellectual arrogance. And one of the things I try to teach my students is rather than to give a kind of knee-jerk reaction that's really based on belief system in science, let's just be willing to admit that we don't know and call for further investigation and just have an open mind about it. If we're able to help to promote that kind of attitude, I think that alone would be a success. Richie, I know we have limited time, but I did want to ask you, where do you see the research heading in this field? There are lots of things to say about future research. Let me name just two very different areas, but important future direction. You know, at some future point, I'd be happy to do another one of these and take these up in more detail. You know, one of the things that the Dalai Lama always reminds me when I'm with him is he says, there are 7 billion people (laughs) uh, and we need to do everything we can to reach all of them and not leave anybody out. And if we really are thinking of scaling this, it needs to involve technology. And that's something that is fraught with complexity, yet 
it also is necessary, we believe, to investigate. And so we're involved in an effort to see if we can teach some of these practices using mobile technology and also measuring their impact using mobile technology in ways that could be scaled, not as a complete replacement for in-person training, but we think that it's going to be important at least as a complement to so that we can bring this to the further reaches of the planet. And so that's one trend. A second very different area, which is super exciting, is this. We know that there are sensitive periods in development when the brain is particularly susceptible to influences. And one of these, which actually is the period when the brain is most susceptible, is a time that has never been studied before, and that is prenatally. Mm. We just published a major paper in one of the JAMA journals, JAMA Pediatrics, the Journal of the American Medical Association, showing that the well-being of a mother during the second trimester of pregnancy actually strongly predicts structural differences in the brain of the babies when we put them in a scanner at one month of age. And this is a huge opportunity. We are starting to do work now where we're providing training in these skills of well-being to moms while they're pregnant, before they've had a baby, and then looking at the impact of this on the fetus once they give birth. And we think that this is really extremely important. We can potentially influence brain development in ways that have enduring consequences through interventions that we can do in pregnancy. So exciting. Richie, it's been a joy to have you. Thank you so much, You're Richie. someone who walks the walk of what you study. You're kind and compassionate and changing the world, and we're just proud to know you. Well, likewise, I feel blessed to know the two of you, and I so appreciate all of what you're doing in the world. It's really quite inspiring, and I look forward to remaining connected and to seeing you in person at some point. Thank you for joining us on HealthGig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. <laughs>